0: Hello, and welcome to Building Better, a podcast about the human spaces and urban landscapes that we build worldwide in order to ask the question, how can we build better? My name is Christoph Lindner, and as well as being your host for this podcast, I'm also the dean here at UCL Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment. In each episode, I'll be sitting down with other members of this community to explore new ideas on some of the world's most important challenges, bringing together multidisciplinary perspectives and radical thinking from some of our world leading experts. In this month's episode, I'm asking the question Does public space have a future? And to tackle that question, I've brought together three Bartlett researchers and artists to explore how the creation and use of public space is changing. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Maria Camargiani, an associate professor of transport and energy in the Bartlett School of Environment, Energy and Resources, and also the head of Mass Lab, an interdisciplinary research team that studies new mobility services and technologies, and collaborates with partners across the private and public sector to help create low carbon, smart city travel infrastructure. I'm also joined by Dr. Lucy Natharajan, a lecturer from the Bartlett School of Planning. Now Lucy's research centers on public participation in strategic urban planning, with a current focus on spatial inequality, the everyday economy, and clean air. She co-founded the Place Alliance, a movement promoting the Place Quality Agenda, and which provides research support to the UK 2070 Commission and the Suburban Task Force. My third guest this month is Dr. Leah Lovett, an artist and research fellow at the Bartlett Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis. Building on her experience, of participatory and socially engaged art practices, she explores how digital technologies can be used to tell stories that empower people to engage with urban and green space. As part of this work, she collaborated with colleagues and arborists to create the Listening Wood Project, which invited walkers on Hampstead Heath to interact with ancient and veteran trees via SMS. Over lockdown, Leah has been developing a number of co-creation projects with young people, youth organizations, and artists in East London. So a very warm welcome to all three of our guests. And I want to start the discussion today by just finding out a little bit about how each of you uses public space. And so my first question is this, and it's a little bit tricky as a question given the pandemic, but... When was the last time you were in a public space and what were you doing there? Leah?
1: Okay, so I'm really fortunate to live beside Epping Forest. I was walking. I think like a lot of people, I've been really appreciative of the green and open spaces in London over lockdown and having the ability to yeah, walk and be around other people, if not interacting directly with them.
0: Lovely. So a green stroll in a wooded space. Fantastic. What about Lucy and Maria?
2: Well, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you were thinking about, Christoph. but um, the last interaction I had of a public nature was actually online. And normally I would have been meeting people in Bloomsbury to talk about air quality. But because of the lockdown, And not living in Bloomsbury, I met them online. And I think that is interesting in thinking about public space, that we will interact and have discussions with people very differently than we would normally do. Um, And it's obviously an important angle of public space that it offers us this sociability and a, a stage, really, for public voice and interaction with others.
0: Yeah, fascinating. So the possibility that digital space, Zoom space, is also a kind of public space. Maria.
3: Regarding uh, the digital public place, I've been in several digital public spaces recently, but in terms of physical public space, we are quite lucky. We have a a communal garden and due to the fact that I have a baby, we go quite often there in the afternoon to to enjoy the fresh air and to play with uh, other kids it's quite important. Yeah, our business can move to the digital world, but our social life, our family life needs these physical public spaces, green spaces, in order to interact with our um, family members and with our kids.
0: So it sounds like already we have two questions coming out of your examples. One being, what is public space? And another being, where is public space? But listening to you, I'm also struck by my own last experience of being in public space, which I would consider this morning taking my daughter to school on the tube and using public transport. And very different to Leia, who I I have this image of Leia walking through this beautiful landscape with trees and greenery and fresh air and solitude. And then I'm thinking of my experience underground, a little bit too crowded, not quite enough masks being worn and everybody looking at each other rather suspiciously and uncomfortably. It seems like there's a multitude of different kinds of public spaces that we're all trying to access right now during the pandemic. And I guess the question for me is when we're in these kinds of spaces, how do we know that they are public spaces? So what do we mean by the word public?
1: I feel like I should correct a slight misnomer there of me walking in solitude because I also have two young children. So <laughs> they're more like walks with regular whining. But just to pick up that question around what public space is, it's something that whilst I was working on the Listening Wood project and I was writing poems for SMS interaction, you know, I really got to know the 14 trees that I was working with quite intimately through the arborists who are their custodians. And the oldest tree that I worked with is a 500-year-old oak. And it invited me into this kind of longitudinal, (laughs) I guess, imaginary. When that oak was a sapling, London was a city several miles to the south. It was already an established adult tree by the time the enclosure acts were being brought in. At some point, it may have been a boundary oak separating different spaces. It then belonged to a private garden at one point, and eventually it was gifted to the City of London as a a park space. So I suppose something that I've been thinking about is just how contested public spaces are, and they aren't stable. Any idea that we have of a public space being a single kind of stable thing is really challenged through that image of the oak tree, I think.
0: So I love this idea of public spaces being unstable. And I'm just kind of wondering a little bit, what is bringing that instability? Is it us and the way that we manage or police or construct spaces? Is it the nature of uh, a space being open to lots of different people for lots of different uses that makes it unstable? Or Or is it something else entirely?
2: I think you struck a nerve with me there, Christophe, very much, as did Leo. The idea that necessarily public spaces are contested. (laughs) And for me, in the sort of public spaces that I was mentioning, the one online where we are talking to people about clean air, what you find is that there's always going to be different points of view about priorities and uses of space. And the idea that these places are vibrant is not the same as saying that everybody within those spaces see vibrancy in the same way. And to me, a real concern I have at the minute is, you mentioned policing, but how we regulate public space, because the idea that a protest might not be disruptive, it it goes against the very idea of a protest, which is one of the really important functions of public space, is that you can articulate political views publicly to others. And public space for me is very much where you meet the other, Yes, you go there with your family members and you go there ostensibly to play sport and so on. But one of the wonderful productive things about public space is that you meet people you wouldn't meet otherwise, who are different from you. So vibrancy, to me, it it contains conflict and therefore public space, as we construct it, the understandings of it, but also the shape of it, the ones that work well are the ones where we can create, recreate, change and and have conflicts with each other in, in a way that's productive, not aggressive.
3: I liked what you mentioned, Christophe, about the tube and the fact that the tube is also a public space because a lot of people meet there as well, not for social purposes, but for traveling uh, purposes. And when we say public space, usually our mind goes to to green areas, to open space. But indeed, these public transport uh, areas are public areas. And this reminds me of a survey that we did a few years ago in London about time allocation. And we found out that uh, an average Londoner spends about three days per month under the earth in in the tube. And uh, now this starts making me wondering that how can we improve this public space? How can we improve the air quality, make it nicer, cleaner?
0: Yeah, that, Yeah, absolutely. So that's a fascinating statistic that, you know, Londoners, and I'm sure this is true of people who live in, in cities all around the world, spending a few days a month of their time underground or in buses or, you know, in some way commuting and moving around the city. So we, so we have different kinds of public spaces. We have open spaces like parks or squares that maybe we are trained To recognize as open public spaces where different kinds of people can congregate, where we can bump into and interact with others, including strangers and people who are different from us. And then we have public spaces, maybe like public uh, transportation, which are much more functional and they're a necessity. They're a way to do something or get somewhere. And I think the attitude in those spaces is often very different, right? So in tubes and crowded buses, people are maybe not quite so interested in interacting with others. and with strangers and I guess what I'm wondering is um, how do we know what a space is designed for, what what creates the culture or the atmosphere of a space. Why don't people say hello to each other on the tube and chat? They don't, and they probably wouldn't want, feel comfortable doing so, but why don't they? And maybe, you know, to flip that question a little bit, why is it that if we're in a park or a public space and we stroll past someone else, we might be more inclined to be polite, to say hello, to interact in some kind of social way?
1: I don't know if this is a very helpful answer because it may be contradicts what you've (laughs) just suggested but it brought to mind an anecdote unrelated to work when i had a new baby she was very distressed on the underground she became very upset i was surrounded by women on the tube and they just spontaneously started singing a nursery rhyme and i think there was something about like that there are there are situations in which spaces that we might not associate as being kind of communal collective spaces can be transformed into that. I also, my PhD research was on a, a theater director called Augusta Boral, He would stage plays in underground spaces without announcing them as such, as a way of sparking conversation. So I think we, we conform to certain behaviors on the tube, but when one of us breaks out of those codified social behaviors, it's possible for spaces even like the tube to become a kind of social space of productive interaction.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Leah. That's a beautiful, beautiful example. And it's great to to, to know and to hear that these kinds of acts of spontaneous sociality and support can and do still happen. What about spaces like public squares? There are a lot of them in London, just as there are a lot of parks. It seems like during the lockdown of the last year, these public squares are being used more and more for a very particular kind of activity, which is political protest.
2: In terms of uh, what works in, in the urban form, to encourage vibrancy. A lot of the literature talks about the ability for people to manipulate elements within an environment. So take a square where all the seats are bolted to the ground, that won't work as well. As a square where people can move chairs around, that's a classic urban design example of how you make spaces. So these adaptable spaces that are visibly able to be reshaped by people as they use them encourage sociability there's also a lot of evidence around uh, actually green space and natural environment making us feel a stronger attachment with a place uh, and a space so that we'll feel more comfortable there. There's a, a lot of work which is beyond my expertise around massing and form and heights of buildings and the details of those and how they can shape, for example, the the actual environment in real terms. You know how windy it is, how warm it is, and so on. How comfortable we feel physiologically in a the space. There's a you know there is an urban design component, but I think overall what I've read suggests that that will always be overlaid with a much stronger factor of social. Uh, influence that just human beings the way we are we we tend to respond not only to buildings and environment but to people and to the natural environment around us
3: and uh, from um, an urban design perspective usually in most cities the squares are the the point where people meet all together for social activities either these are riots or to celebrate something and the transport system, the network is also designed like this, to connect all the nodes, all the areas with this central point where people meet that usually is uh, a square.
0: Yeah,
3: Just thinking in terms of Trafalgar
1: Square, I think it also plays a really important function as a sort of living room of the nation. It plays an important role in staging national identity, I think. It's a kind of space that, that invites attention. So maybe it, it becomes a strategic site of protest because, yeah, it's kind of strategic location near to the, the crown and the state makes it uh, invite certain kinds of performance. And I suppose that w- was what I was getting at with the anecdote. I think the way that we perform spaces is as important as the way that they are staged
0: Leah, you have, I think, uh, you seem to have a fairly optimistic view of what public space can do, and seem to be able to identify a lot of value in the kinds of activities and performances that public spaces can allow. So I I want to push back against that a little bit, just because I'm I'm a more pessimistic person. And we might feel encouraged or safe or able to express ourselves and perform our politics or our identities in a public space. But I do wonder about the culture of surveillance that increasingly surrounds public spaces, CCTV, the monitoring of personal data via your phone, the capturing of your image, the mediatization of any large um, group uh, event that happens in a public space. I wonder about this kind of apparatus of security and surveillance that increasingly organizes and controls public space. Does that not rub up uncomfortably against this more optimistic utopia? social vision of space
1: yes and i think when i speak about performance i should probably qualify that's not necessarily just a kind of joyous jubilant image that i have in mind and nor do i think it's it's not necessarily easy it's not easy for people to do that necessarily spaces uh, like trafalgar square are not equally accessible to all people all of the time they're not nor nor are spaces like the tube for that matter you know if you're a woman traveling on a crowded tube potentially there's a different set of risks so i use performance within a kind of frame of thinking about activism and how we enact rights of access but that doesn't mean that they're easily won and surveillance for sure (laughs) can be a way of regulating how bodies operate in those kind of spaces so yes i agree with you
0: So you brought up uh, the question of safety in public space. And here in the UK and around the world, there's a lot of thought being given right now to what happened to Sarah Everard in London. And it's brought out a lot of discussion and sharing of experiences of people, especially women, not feeling or being safe in public. And I kind of wonder about that side of public space, the idea of space being something that is potentially hostile, that can expose you to danger. And there's a lot of debate at the moment about how do we respond? How do we make public space safer for everyone? And right now, especially for women. Do you have thoughts on that?
3: Probably it's not the public space that we should blame per se or the way it is designed but I think this is related to people and people's behavior so we should probably cultivate respect to people and not only to women or uh, any other population groups but to everyone and if we start cultivating this nature of respect then I think this will automatically transmit it to public space as well. I think there's a lot in that. And I think my greatest fear
2: is that we let the fear of risk control what we do. For example, special protected zones for women. Wouldn't that be horrific? What we want is a change in culture so you feel safe everywhere. And that can only happen when everybody gets behind it. So it's not for women to change their behavior. It's for society to understand and recognize and be ready for situations that may and hopefully may not occur in my view and I, I think that as you say maria then the built environment and the public space that are created are not in themselves they're <laughs> responsible parties but it's the people moving within them and perhaps to how our Governance cultures operate. I mean, how much say do we have over the design of the built environment and what amenities are there for us is is equally important to our sense of belonging in a place as the cultural performance of it. So there's some great work by my colleague, uh, Yasmina Bibi John, who also works in planning, who's looking at the, the value of bringing women into planning and design stages to make sure that things that might not be thought about by people who may not have those experiences are taken account. In the designing of
0: those spaces. So I think that's really important. So, Lucy, you're, you're advocating for more involvement of women's voices, women's experience in the design of cities. Why isn't that already happening? Why, why aren't we already well down that road and already valuing and incorporating the voices and experiences, not just of women, but of all people who have a place and live in cities?
2: Look, we're moving from a very top-down model towards models of grassroots and what is insurgent forms of planning. And that sort of shift takes time because you're changing institutions. And I'm not being an apologist; I'm just saying... It does take time. But also that the answer is not simply to put the power in different people's hands. We're talking about a culture shift. So, for example, simply responsabilizing smaller and smaller layers and tiers of government does not change the problem of threats and risks. What you need to do is change the culture more broadly across society, as well as involving different people. At different scales, of different communities and different experiences, there's also a challenge in terms of bringing in people who have perhaps not been involved in the processes that exist for the production of space. So there's always a concern that it might become an invited space of governance that people who are being brought in are simply brought in as tokens um, and not really heard. So there's there's a shift in not only the thinking on both sides, those who've been working a top-down way need to shift them all bottom-up, but those who've been been outside of the governance networks that produce spaces are also on a steep learning curve at times and are working as well very hard to change the processes. So there's a lot of work to be done and this kind of, in my view, accounts for the Recently, we're not already seeing much more of this sort of diversity of voices within the protection space that we would like to see but we have moved a great we have moved a great deal recently and I think there's much more awareness of the need for it which is wonderful Lucy
1: I agree with you I think we all have a responsibility in terms of where we direct our attention and the stories that we choose to listen to and the voices that we choose to hear I've been doing work recently with young people in newham and sharing the memory map toolkit which is created by a colleague of mine, Duncan Hay and Kassa. And through sharing knowledge and resources, the young people created their own youth map of the borough. And that's ended up becoming a really kind of useful resource, maybe also kind of bringing it back to the trees, if I may. When I went into that project, I thought I was going to be gathering stories of people connected to the trees and the more time I spent with the trees and with the arborists the more I realized that the trees had their own stories to tell. There's a leaning pine on Hampstead Heath that was brought back to the UK as a seed from Ravenna by an industrialist called Turner who was on a grand tour and that tree turned into a a pine that was sketched by Constable and it's got this incredible heritage value but in my research I discovered that soon after he took the seed there were there were massive forest fires that destroyed many of its close relatives in Ravenna and it occurred to me that maybe we could think of the trees using the industrialist as a kind of propagation vector and kind of what happens when you turn that story around what happens when you think of that trophy of empire using this gentleman on his grand tour to convey him across the water like when you choose to listen to the story differently it allows you to see spaces differently too
0: So you're listening to Building Better, the Bartlett Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment. If there's a question about life and research at the Bartlett you would like us to answer, email us at bartlett.coms at ucl.ac.uk, or you can tweet at Bartlett UCL. In today's episode, we're asking: Does public space have a future? So it makes me wonder about the phenomenon of pseudo public space. So spaces that may present themselves as being open to the public, designed for the public, but are in reality, private or privatized, or the reverse. You know, private spaces that actually function well as gathering spaces for the public. And I'm wondering, in your experience, how have you come across pseudo public spaces? And do you find them as confusing as I do?
2: I think certainly there's a real concern about the privatisation of public space and the way that, for example, uh, surveillance cameras and rules about who can do what in this space is inhibiting the real value that you can have from public space. And private spaces that work well as public spaces are potentially more rare, aren't they? Although we can think perhaps of our own institution and the way that we open up the spaces that we own as a university to the wider public and that might be a more positive model i wonder as well and this is slightly tangential to the the pseudo public space angle about a sort of macro view of public space because we're so far we've really focused on parks, squares, roads uh, transport and so on we might include libraries and the internet in that as well but there's something else isn't there and I think speaking as a planner there's a sort of network of public space that's really important how these spaces operate together to give a wider ecosystem whether it's a transport system or a natural environment system and that that too is something that anybody living in a local place will know how it functions in their local place whether it works well or not where the pinch point are and why you shouldn't concrete over a particular part because it's part not just in and of itself, but because it's part of a wider system of not just amenity, but how the place functions and how how people move around within it and people's understanding what we would call a legibility of the place in terms of how it works and what, what it does. For the community. And I think that's another
0: interesting angle for me. So let me let me share an example where I got the legibility of space wrong and had a kind of embarrassing experience here in London. So last summer, when the lockdowns eased enough for us to be able to move around a bit and do some light shopping and so on, I went with a couple of teenagers on the London overground, so public transport, over to some um, shopping mall in West London. And you come out of the space and you kind of get seamlessly sucked into the commercial space of 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 the shopping mall. And I remember walking in and wondering, well, what's the boundary? How do you know when you've left the public space of transport and the street and properly and fully entered the commercial space of the shopping mall? But what happened in there that was slightly embarrassing is I felt uneasy about all the crowds that were there. And I actually took a photo then to, to my partner because I wanted to say, oh, look at all these people out here. There's not enough social distancing. And when I took up my phone and took a picture, a security guard came up and said, you are not allowed to take pictures. And I said, well, why not? This is public space and he said no it isn't and i went home and i looked it up on the kind of terms and conditions of the of the website of the mall and it said absolutely photography is not permitted on this private space i was very confused i did not read the space well and i had quite an uncomfortable exchange with that security guard but what's going on there um what's what's what what are the real dynamics at work do you think
1: I've had similar experiences, <laughs> Christoph. in terms of yeah, sh- where, where you're allowed to photograph and the rights of photography, which exist on a public highway versus those that don't exist in a shopping centre. And then the sense also that you are particularly photographed within a shopping centre. So there's a kind of an imbalance there in terms of who gets to kind of do the capturing <laughs> of the images. It's really challenging if you're making public artwork, I think. The kind of limitations on spaces that fall under that kind of private or pseudo-public banner.
0: Would you say that there's a growing need, particularly as we come out of the pandemic, to, and I use this word trying to be really loaded in the way that I use it, to reclaim public space? Is there the notion that public space has come more and more under the control of groups or systems that are not interested in the well-being of the public and that the public as a diverse broad group of citizens needs to somehow reoccupy and reclaim these these spaces lucy you're nodding
2: i i very much agree with that from work with the suburban task force it's very apparent that particularly in london and the southeast there's such enormous growth pressures, growth in terms of economy and building and population growth, that the concern for the valuing and the protection of public space may be not given the attention it's deserving. So, for example, the way in which the pavement can be taken over by cars as people convert gardens into parking spaces but don't really park just on the garden space as it was one example we and in that obviously we're considering the transport links as part of this bigger network of public space that's really important to its proper functioning and there's also also the concern just in really obvious terms around massing of buildings whether we go up if we need to build more units or whether we go outwards and keep a lower rise so there's almost a tension there between two groups in society one concerned about the the skyline and the the heights of buildings and another concerned with the, the use in and around the building and the way that if you don't build upwards you are necessarily asking that the plot is given over more to built density rather than just density of population
0: and maria
3: because in some cases it's getting out of control we want to have buildings, uh, then uh, this creates a need for parking spaces and public space is then quite limited. Focusing more on the transport side, we can uh, identify and design several alternatives than just owning my private car that it is parked in my garden or in a parking lot for 23 hours in a day and I just use this for one hour. We can, and with all this support that we have currently from technology, we can design new concepts within the shared economy spirit to to make more public space for all of us in our cities.
0: So we've been talking about whether public space has a future and listening to our guests what I've learned is that yes it does but it's going to be a contested future what's at stake for us
2: thinking about what's at stake in making sure that we still agitate for and promote and protect public space and expand it as well perhaps I see it Within the same broad area of concerns as I do other things like local economy. So, the way that we want to protect the place quality to protect the the community that we live in we 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 need it but i also have a concern around the inequality of provision of public space so there are some beautiful public spaces and they're very free and fair and fun and friendly <laughs> using the terms of the place alliance to describe what is Good place quality, but they're not everywhere. And if we're not careful, if we don't have a really strategic overview where the pressures, where the growth pressures are falling and having conversation and policy about protecting and promoting these sorts of spaces, then they may be forgotten within all the other wider concerns that are part of the discussion about development, like productivity, economic growth in GDP terms, for example. Um, Another very important things, but public space maybe doesn't have the level of attention that it needs within the decision making.
1: Yeah, I'd agree what what is at stake in public spaces is is like justice. Justice is at stake. It's where we articulate our needs. And I'd say that's true for humans, but also more than human (laughs) participants, you know, in as we think towards a just transitions towards a sort of green economy and a green future. I think, yeah, I've tried to sort of indicate that in speaking about the trees, but I think there's There's ways that we can um, foreground stories that are told in ways that require us to listen a little bit harder.
0: (laughs) I think that is a fabulous note on which to wrap up our conversation. But before I let you go, we always like to ask our guests to look more broadly at the future of the built environment. And just to share with us one thing that you think needs to change so that we can build better.
2: I'm sure that you'll anticipate that I will say this, we need to listen more to communities and having them involved in the process of building from the start, throughout and beyond. Not trying to pigeonhole them into one part of the development process, but to to keep talking to communities as things change. Everybody was taken a little bit by surprise. Perhaps they shouldn't have been, but they were taken by surprise as to how much our lives have changed in the last 18 months or so. And therefore, we can't uh, just involve people at the very early stages of planning because things change. We have to pivot and we have to continue to listen to communities as we do so.
3: I totally agree with Lucy about involving citizens from the very early beginning of designing public spaces and uh, the built environment. And I also think it's really important to respect the nature when we build, when we design our cities. And I would say we
1: can't, we can't build better unless we can imagine better. So the way we imagine and who we imagine with and being able to think of ourselves out of existing paradigms and narratives.
0: Well, thank you to my guests today. You have been listening to Building Better, the Bartlett podcast. This episode was presented by myself, Christoph Lindner, produced by UCL with support from the Bartlett communications team and edited by Karis Bradley. It featured music from Blue Dot Sessions with additional sounds recorded by Paul Bavister. I was joined today by Dr. Maria Kamarjiani, Dr. Lucy Natarajan and Dr. Leah Lovett. If you would like to hear more of these podcasts, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or you can visit it ucl.ac.uk slash Bartlett slash Building Better and follow us at Bartlett UCL. This podcast is brought to you by The Bartlett, UCL's global faculty of the built environment, and UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights, and expertise through events, digital content, and activities that are open to everyone. We'll see you next month.